This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, November the 6th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Rogers Communications is locking out former Shaw employees after a breakdown in contract negotiations. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will share the latest news on this story. Michelle's really found herself on the uh, labor beat the last couple of weeks. The 2023 Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit went down last week in England. Stephen Scott shares his takeaways from the conference. And the Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament wrapped up. Peter Parsons recaps the event. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But the show begins story of the day and that's Canada's premiers meeting in Halifax Nova Scotia John Kennedy sets up the agenda Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston says health care is the main formal agenda item at the latest Council of the Federation meeting, and he hopes talks will produce innovative ideas that can help the provinces address the problems plaguing health care in Canada. Houston says discussions may also venture into carbon pricing and Alberta's plan to withdraw from the Canada Pension Plan. The focus on the cost of fuel comes after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced last month a three-year pause on carbon pricing for home fuel oil in 10 jurisdictions where federal fuel charges apply. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. Uh, You heard John Kennedy mention that aspect of the story and premiers and other politicians are still sounding off on that carbon tax pause. BC Premier David Eby thinks the federal government could have been more proactive. You know, I don't begrudge uh, Atlantic Canadians the ability to get off home heating oil and uh, and not to have to endure those huge bills that come when the fuel truck shows up. But I sure am unhappy that uh, that there's not a clear path yet for British Columbia on co-delivery of, uh, of free heat pumps for British Columbians that are in the exact same situation. And federal Conservative leader Pierre Polyev spoke at the Saskatchewan Party convention over the weekend. Polyev believes issues around the heating fuel pause will galvanize more resistance to the carbon tax. We had consistent leadership from Scott Moe fighting against it up until just yesterday when his minister pulled together the other finance ministers to tell Christia Freeland, the provinces are against this tax, and I know on Monday the premiers will meet again, and Scott Moe will be leading the charge to fight the prime minister and axe this tax. So you heard Pierre Proliev mention the finance ministers in that clip. They did get together on Friday for a meeting about the Canada pension plan. Alberta has floated the idea of leaving the CPP. Federal Finance Minister Christia Freeland acknowledged that Alberta would have that right. Of course, Alberta has the right to withdraw from the CPP, should it so choose. All of the ministers recognize that today. Freeland notes there would have to be a significant bureaucratic process if Alberta left the CPP. If Alberta were to withdraw from the CPP, 
the federal government would need to issue a regulation recognizing comparability with the CPP, and Alberta would need to negotiate complex, time-consuming portability agreements with the CPP and with the Quebec Pension Plan. Switching to the world of technology, Google is going to be in court today. Donna Warder lays out the case. A jury will decide whether Google's digital payment processing system and the App Play Store has been illegally driving up prices. The case is being brought by Epic Games, the maker of the popular Fortnite video game, which lost in a similar trial in 2021 that focused on many of the same issues in Apple's iPhone App Store. In that trial, the judge and an appeals court both determined that Apple should allow apps to provide links to other payment options, a change that could undermine the up to 30% commissions that both Apple and Google collect on digital purchases made with a mobile app. Apple is appealing that part of the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Donna Water. Uh, lawyers are always staying busy. Another story from the United States. The federal government is making a big investment in train infrastructure. Karen Travers tracks down the story. President Biden today is announcing a $16.4 billion investment to rebuild and replace crumbling passenger rail infrastructure along Amtrak's Northeast Corridor, the area between Washington, D.C. and Boston. It's aimed at improving travel times. The White House is calling this the largest investment in passenger rail since the creation of Amtrak. Officials say the funding is for 25 projects that will create more than 100,000 direct and indirect jobs. The president delivers remarks today at Amtrak Maintenance Shops, an 85-acre campus in Delaware, where Northeast Corridor Amtrak trains are repaired and maintained. Karen Travers, ABC News, Washington. Certainly that's an American story, but you know I'm going to bang my table, although not too hard because they tell me that I'm damaging the table when I get too passionate in here. But I'm going to bang the table and say, invest in passenger rail service in Canada too, darn it. There's no reason that the Toronto, Quebec City, Windsor, Montreal, Ottawa corridor should be so woefully serviced by trains. High-speed rail running all day. Let's go to borrow a sportsism. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked all about daylight saving and... You were asked specifically, would you stop the practice of daylight saving? 85% of you said yes, 15% of you said no. Rosemary writes in on Facebook, yes, it just messes up everyone in their sleep cycles, and that is something the world does not need. It was quite nice over the weekend to wake up with a little more bright light. It was definitely nice to walk into work this morning, not in the pitch black. And I don't mind the sun going down a little bit earlier. Uh, when I'm a creature of the evening, I like the sun to go down a little bit smoother. So uh, this daylight saving thing uh, is working for me, but let's just stay like this. Let's keep the mornings bright and a little bit darker in the evening. Do you really need the sun to set at 9.30 in the summer? 8.30 would be just fine. Today's Daily Poll, all about housing costs. Shelley Petit will explore this topic a little bit in about 20 minutes in her segment, but just flat out, asking this directly, are you considering moving due to the cost of housing? Now, that could mean downsizing your residence in the region that you live, or even moving regions, the province, or the country, etc. 
it's a yes no question with room for nuance so please do get involved in the comment section at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook alex Smythe, welcome back from europe great to have you back aboard well thank you dave it's great to be here so alex Certainly for individuals leaving a city or a region might not be an option. That's definitely the case for me. I've got to be in the studio every morning. So living in Toronto is pretty much the only choice, especially as someone who's legally blind and can't drive. I'm even more limited in where I uh, choose to live, even within the city limits. But I'll tell you, Alex, the cost of housing, the possibility of a big interest rate bump for me uh, coming down the pipeline, it, it's got me at least considering the possibility of a downsizing. And, and if I could, I would definitely consider getting the heck out of this city for somewhere cheaper to live. Absolutely, Dave. But the problem is uh, anywhere that is still relatively close to the city and that has public transit access that you and I would require are also going to be quite expensive. It's gonna be, there's not that um, area or pocket anymore that there used to be pre-pandemic, like you could look at for Toronto, oh, Hamilton, you know, that there's a lot of starter homes and the, the, the property values are a lot cheaper. That's not the case since the pandemic because everyone already moved out into yep. those regions and yep. jacked up the, the housing costs. But so for myself- They I'm, ajaxed I'm up the prices. Exactly. So it's like anywhere on that go train corridor, you're 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 going to be struggling. So for me right now, I'm not considering it, but I've already put myself in a position that I moved out of Toronto during the pandemic. I'm living at home trying to save money so I can get into that market. But that said, I have a couple of friends, actually. There's three of them that have decided to buy a house together and move in to pay down that mortgage quickly. Yeah. So people are, are exploring these alternative arrangements to really make it that they can get into the housing market because the the cost of living, the housing, everything is just so high compared to what it would have been five, 10 years ago. Yeah, the cohabitational side of it is certainly an interesting one. There's also just, there's been, especially in Southern Ontario, right? I, I, don't, yeah. I don't mean to specifically focus on Southern Ontario, but that is one of the biggest pain points in the whole country right now, Southern Ontario and the Vancouver area. Like those are the mm -hmm. two biggest pain points, but there are a lot of other pain points throughout the country as well. But one of the things that's really notable about Toronto versus, say, Montreal, is that in Montreal, there are all these neighborhoods that are adjacent to the core of downtown Montreal, where there's tons of duplexes, triplexes, quadplexes, semi-detached, row houses. There's that opportunity for people to potentially get in together and say, we're going to buy a triplex in Verdun. We're going to buy a quadplex in St. Henry. And then they can sort of do that cohabitation thing that you're talking about, but also actually have their own door and their own space. The city of Toronto has just been woefully behind on that because you get all of these single homes inside the city core, which admittedly are now being renovated to create really kind of dodgy rental, <laughs> really dodgy rental environments. Like clearly this was a home that you've now sort of uh, barely separated into separate apartments, but it's, it's a lot of sort of retrofitting rather than thinking ahead to say, okay, four people could get together and each take a floor in this place. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's that adaption, uh, adaptation after the fact, as, uh, as you mentioned, opposed to really having the foresight and the planning ahead of time and, and really developing the the infrastructure ahead of time and having these as separate units and not trying to yeah. adapt it because you, you run into all sorts of problems it's like oh this is a laneway garden suite or what is the new term i've started hearing a lot more of and you're starting to see that people are, are looking to renovate and rent out half of their house of 
top floor, bottom floor, just to make ends meet because yeah. of these interest rates too. Sheds, we're gonna build some nice yeah. sheds in the backyard. Don't worry, it'll have insulation though, and maybe it'll have a bathroom. But again, it's, it's not just a Southern Ontario or Vancouver yeah. issue. The reality is Shelley Petit is going to share the New Brunswick perspective on this. And for a long time, places like Fredericton and Moncton were places where you could go live if you wanted to at a fair at a fairly reasonable price but the housing price increase has definitely impacted places like Atlantic Canada certainly Halifax is one of the fastest growing cities in the country and there's been a massive spike in housing prices in places like Halifax so this this issue sometimes is framed in the Toronto and Vancouver context but Shelley Petit is going to offer a bit of a New Brunswick perspective on this oh in about 15 to 20 minutes or so Alex thank you for this I want to hear from you out there in listener land in the viewer vortex, whether it be listening to the audio stream at amiplus.ca or if you're watching the show live right now on AMI-tv, potentially in a hotel room, here's what you do. You grab your phone and you vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, or you open up your email application and send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or if that sounds like too much work, you just want to sound off and let your vocal cords be heard. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Vote on the poll. Let your voice be heard. Don't say no one ever asks your opinion on these things because I am asking your opinion right now. Coming up after the break, Rogers is locking out former Shaw employees after a breakdown in contract negotiations. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will have the latest news on this story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. There's another labor fight brewing in Canada. This time, it's in the telecom industry. Rogers Communication has locked out hundreds of employees. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and it's very quickly become the labor relations reporter on Now with Dave Brown. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, there are a few threads to tug at here. First yes. things first, who are the affected employees? Well, yeah, another Monday, another strike. Uh, this one, as you as you mentioned, it's it's Rogers. And what makes this one more interesting, it's not a huge st a strike in terms of scale. We're talking about maybe 300 or so technicians. But what makes this one a bit more interesting is the backdrop. If you remember, uh, there was a lot of chatter earlier this year about Rogers and Shaw and their mm -hmm. big merger, their $26 mm -hmm. billion dollar merger that had all kinds of regulatory drama, but it did go through earlier this year, and now we're seeing some of that fallout. Uh, these are 300 technicians that were employed by Shaw and therefore were absorbed in the merger. Uh, there's been contract negotiations going on since February or so. So I think even before the merger officially closed, I don't have, don't quote me on that, but I believe that's the case. Um, but what happened is the, the, the negotiations weren't going well, similar sticking points to what we've seen wages a little bit, but mostly contract work and, and, and employers trying to contract uh, union tasks out to, to outsiders. Those are the main sticking points. Um, the technicians served notice that they were going to start rotating strikes starting today at noon. But then on the weekend, the wrinkle was that Rogers said, no, actually, we're just going to lock you out. 
So that's where we stand right now. No rotating strikes. Uh, the union says that they had planned to keep working to some degree just with the rotating strikes, but now they're off the job entirely because of the lockout. Michelle, go a little bit deeper into that back and forth around strike mandates and then the eventual company decision to do the lockout. Mm-hmm. What, like what, what's the response been to that? What's sort of some of the analysis on that? So what's been, yeah, the pattern that we've seen in terms of these talks is similar to what we've had on all the other labor stories we've had in that these these were ongoing talks. The union gave a preemptive strike mandate a couple of months ago when talks were still ongoing, but 99% or so said, yeah, we will go on strike if you can't have any success. And that was the the sort of driving force behind the union's actions. And when they resolved on the rotating strikes, they felt they had the green light to do that. Uh, it was really only on the weekend uh, when Rogers said that you, the union had communicated their intentions, but then refused to cooperate any further. So Rogers just decided to lock them out. Mm. Um, they're saying that they're doing that in order to maintain reliability. Um, again, the union counters that by saying, well, now we're off the job in full instead of just having to be partially off the job. So they don't really see where that's coming from. Um, but that's that's kind of the sequence of events that's been going on here. And okay. I mentioned before that the, the contract work is the big, big sticking point. And that's the one where we've been hearing more about wages being the central concern in a lot of these uh, mediation or, or negotiation situations. Not so this time. It's more about making sure that union jobs stay with union workers. Yeah, it's the notion of it's the notion of temporary or precarious work. That's something that a lot of unions are starting to realize in a more uh, precarious workforce and companies looking for a lot of contract work. It's something that yeah, it's it's deeply concerning for unions. I believe that came up a little bit during the uh, federal civil service strike earlier this year as well. Uh, the notion of relying on contract workers. Absolutely, and I think it was a factor in the port strike as well. So it it hasn't. Gone gotten as much ink or airtime as as wage issues and wage concerns, which of course are really driven being driven by the inflationary talk as well. But yeah, subcontracting work is a, it has been a major thread in a lot of these labor strife scenarios that we've seen play out this year, mm-hmm. even if it's not as high profile. Michelle, staying in the work, labor, and life balance file, you see there's a theme here, veterinarians across the country are experiencing burnout Mm. from their jobs. So what's the relevant background around veterinarians and burnouts? Yeah, my colleague Lindsay Armstrong had a really interesting story about this on the weekend. I'd encourage animal lovers to give it a read because the doctors who care for our pets and guide dogs and such uh, have been having a rough time from the looks of it in ways that I never quite realized. Uh, there's a number of factors at play. It turns out vets have always been at higher risk of suicide to the tune of almost 10% over or, over the, the, the base population. But the pandemic has really uh, exacerbated that situation for a lot of people. But there are a few factors. A, the pandemic boom in pets. Yeah, I'm sure yep. we can all think of yep. someone who said, I need a puppy during the pandemic and went and got one. Uh, so there's been that kind of explosion. There has been uh, a great reduction because of the suicide rates, the mental health toll of delivering so much end-of-life care and seeing all the uh, vast array of experiences and, and animal treatments that vets would encounter. Uh, that's been leading to a bit of an exodus from the profession, people burning out or or unfortunately dying or just say opting out, kind of like what we're seeing on the human healthcare side of things. Um, so there's been an exodus from the profession along with this boom in pets. So we have staffing shortages, unwillingness to have new people joining in. And it's, it's, it's both vets and vet technicians, by the yeah, way. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, there's that ripple effect too, is if, if you have vets, you don't have technicians and then you can't really run a practice. 
So all these factors are are putting a lot of strain on the system. And several provinces are reporting major vet shortages. Uh, Lindsay's story talked about one very sad situation in rural New Brunswick, where they're the only vet clinic in, in the region, uh, unfortunately died by suicide. And now it's a couple of neighboring vets from further counties are trying to keep the hospital going, but it's difficult. So it's uh, it's playing out in a lot of different ways, but it is a much bigger problem and, and quite widespread. I never really realized until reading the story. Uh, Michelle, I, I've got a theory here um, beyond sort okay. of the very reasonable things like staff shortages, uh, which, which like makes sense, right? Or the idea of being 24-7 on call to service people mm, like that. That's like, a big one. That yeah. really matters. I would just say this. Jobs that require empathy are exhausting. And if I, I can't think of many jobs that require more empathy than, than dealing with someone whose pet is in a crisis. Because uh, whether people like this or accept this or not, pets are family members. And Absolutely. when someone's pet is in a distressed situation, they're in a distressed situation. So you're not just taking care of the animal, you're taking care of the human as well. And just jobs that require empathy are exhausting. They're extremely exhausting. Uh, I, I think that's as good a theory as any, really. Uh, it's it's hard. It's a difficult situation. The other thing, too, is expenses. Are, it's a very expensive industry to be in. As uh, those of us who pay vet bills know, those costs often get passed down. But there are major, major operational costs to, to having veterinary practices. And uh, that's another yeah. barrier that's keeping and, and, people out and, of the industry. That's interesting. And standards, Sorry. right? Like, 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 because like you are delivering healthcare, so there are standards about how you have to keep your own practice up. It's super expensive yeah. to get your 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 veterinary degree. Like, vet schools are not oh, yeah. cheap to go to. It takes years to get, and then even then, you can't just open a practice right out of school. You typically go have to you have to go apprentice somewhere for a stretch as well. So it, it's a, it's an extremely difficult job to break into with a huge barrier to entry, both financially and time-wise. Absolutely. And the, you mentioned practices, you know, opening your own practice, and that's another interesting thread, actually. As people try to sort of mitigate the effects of all this burnout on themselves, apparently a trend that the veterinary colleges have been seeing are those people who don't want to open their own practice, prefer instead to work as part of someone else's and have a bit more flexibility and to say, no, you know what? I don't want to work Thursdays and Fridays, or I'm only going to work these hours. So people are opting out of the owning their own practice model that does put them on call 24 seven and try to find measures that would give them a little bit more in terms of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. And that itself is contributing to the shortage. Michelle, thank you for taking a little bit of time to talk about this story. I appreciate it. Have a nice day. My pleasure. Take care, Dave. So you heard Michelle uh, mention mental health crisis a couple times there, and I just think it's worth mentioning on the way out that if you are someone who is experiencing a mental health crisis uh, in Canada, there are local crisis centers, or you can call the 24-7 Canada Suicide Prevention Service, which is available in French or English at one 456 4566. That's 1 833 456 4566. There's also the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness 24 7 helpline at 1 855 242 3310-1855-242-3310. And if you are a young person, there's always the kids' help phone, which you can text CONNECT to 686-868. 686 
866-378-8868. Those are those uh, relevant points of contact there. Just wanted to mention that on the way out there as we uh, sort of wandered into um, some delicate mental health side of that conversation. Coming up next, the average vacancy rate in New Brunswick is 1.9%. So what does that mean for Canadians with disabilities in the housing market more broadly? Shelley Petit of the coalition, New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities will offer her analysis. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The demand for housing in New Brunswick is growing. The average vacancy rate in the province is 1.9%. According to Statista, that is slightly higher than the vacancy rates in Ontario and Quebec. Meanwhile, Stats Canada says the Greater Moncton area is Canada's fastest-growing metropolitan area. So what does this all mean for the housing market? And where do people with disabilities stand in all of this? Shelley Petit is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, and Shelley has more to say on this issue. Hey, good morning, Shelley. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. Shelley, thank you for bringing this topic to the table. When did signals of this housing issue begin? The housing issue for non-accessible housing was probably about four or five years ago. Sadly, in New Brunswick, people that need accessible housing, there's always been a crisis. We've never really had that available to us. They put us in pseudo quasi accessible housing and said, yeah, do the best you can. So knowing that this issue has persisted for a while, what has the government response been? Their favorite terms are let the market decide. So, you know, they really got out of, they having the New Brunswick Housing Corporation, they let that slide. MB Housing would provide what was called uh, rent subsidies, but they just felt that there was enough market units out there that were okay, close enough, that it was fine. But then about five years ago, it started getting tighter. You couldn't find three bedrooms. You couldn't find some one bedrooms or a few two bedrooms. Cities were put into real dives. They really, there's no other word for it, but a dive. We have a huge issue in New Brunswick radon. We have the highest percentage of radon seeping up through the ground. And something like 40% of our homes have radon seeping into them. And more and more people are developing cancers because of it and finding out too late. And those are the homes that people and rent subsidies were being put into. And that's just not okay, ever. Shelley, scratch a little bit deeper at some of those barriers that people are running into, because uh, sometimes people think about an accessible home as something with one or two accessible features, rather yes. than maybe a broader understanding of what accessibility actually means yeah. inside someone's home. Right. So, you, I mean, you, first you've got to be able to get to your floor, up and down to your floor. So people are sometimes on the second, third, fourth floor. The elevator goes out. The landlord doesn't see that as necessary to fix. The RTT, the Reynolds Tribunal, doesn't mandate that to be fixed. And if you're on the fourth floor and have a wheelchair, you're now stuck in your apartment. 
That's not cool. Then you've got to be able to get through the doorway. Your doorways, your hallways need to be wide enough that you can get through. Something we're seeing is a lot of people that use bariatric chairs, so larger chairs, cannot get through. So they may just nearly squeeze through a regular wheelchair, but the bariatric chair won't fit. In your kitchen, you've got to be able to get in. We've got so many people <clears throat> who can't access their kitchen. And they're told, well, we'll provide a home care worker. So they're paying someone to go into your home seven hours a day, seven days a week, so that you can get food from your kitchen instead of just making sure that units are properly made so we can access that kitchen. So you can go to the toilet by yourself. So you can shower by yourself. What a concept to be an adult and be able to have your own shower without having someone to have to help you do that all the time. So there's a lot more to accessibility. And that's just for your mobility. Then yeah. you can get into your vision accessibility or, you know, people with hearing loss, just having, you know, fire alarms that blink so that you have a hope to get out in a fire, things like that. What about the battle you might have with a landlord over allowing uh, oh. animals into the home? Uh, and for someone who has a guide dog, a service animal, they're, they're basically in the situation where now they're having to have a human rights fight with a landlord. Yes. And at what point that mm. landlord's going to say, you know what, I'm just going to rent this to someone else and I don't need to give you a right. reason why. Because the market is so tight as well, right? Like, like these, all yes. these things fit together. When the market is tight, it gives the landlords a lot of power. And listen, that's fair. Power. Landlords yeah. can have a lot of power, but it means situations like, hey, you need to understand my guide dog is not an option. This isn't a pet. Your little no pets right. allowed sign doesn't qualify here. Yes, they can say no pets allowed, but a service dog is not a pet, nor in New Brunswick, our human rights board has ruled that uh, emotional support animals are also allowed. All you need is a letter from, and they've listed two or three specialists that say that you need this animal. And as long as it is always within your control, and well-behaved, you can have your emotional support cat with you in your housing unit on uh, regular transit, all this stuff. Landlords have been spoken to by the Human Rights Commission. They don't care. They're not allowed to say no children, professional adults only. They don't care. And then if you call and say, I have a rent subsidy, they hang up. So, you know, it has really left people with disabilities in a horrific place. And we've been telling the government this for years and years and years, and they just denied it. And now, you know, they're studying, studying, studying the situation. Oh, yeah. They created, they brought back the New Brunswick Housing Corp. And so far, I believe all they've done is pick their colors. Like, honestly, it's it's ridiculous how little work they've done for how long this has been created and the amount of employees that work there. Yeah. New Brunswickers should be demanding better because tomorrow, one of them could wake up and be a member of our community. Yeah, you and know, then they're screwed. Shocking, shocking reality. Uh, nobody has ever built a house in a boardroom. You know, uh, it's it, no. No, no, nobody's ever put a shovel in the ground from a boardroom. So uh, that that's probably some meaningful part of that conversation, that bureaucracy isn't necessarily one of the solutions here. There are solutions, though, Shelley. Like, like we, shouldn't just, yes. we shouldn't just leave this on such a negative note, because I think, no. I think anybody watching or listening understands the housing market stinks right now. Right. But there are solutions in place. So to your mind, what are some of the good holistic solutions that can at least start to bridge this gap and solve this crisis? So we've been pushing uh, provincially, federally, even municipally. We want to see more housing. Anything that's getting so much as a penny from the federal government, provincial government, even municipal governments in terms of land for the next little bit, at least 
go to universal design for housing. In universal design, anyone can live there. So whether you're a person with a disability, our veterans, our veterans deserve better than what they've been left with. Uh, and I say that as a mom of a, of a with a daughter in the service, um, you know, our seniors deserve better. I look at what my mother's going through right now. It's not right. And with universal design, anyone can live there, but even more so, you know, an able-bodied person who's in an accident tomorrow could be a sporting accident and needs a wheelchair for two months. If they have a unit that's been universally designed, they're fine. If not, they may have to hire someone to take care of them for two months, or, you know, it becomes an excessive cost to the healthcare system. So why not just start going universal design the way Australia has, the way Ireland is, because we know it works for everyone. And then we're never left with these unused units that are being held just in case someone needs a wheelchair or a vision accessible unit, because no, those shouldn't be held when people are freezing to death on the streets. Shelley, uh, it's an important topic. Thank you for bringing it to the table. Housing is a topic that uh, regularly gets conversed here. Thank you for bringing the New Brunswick perspective into the mix. Anytime. Have a great day. That's Shelley Petit, chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will share the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute. Bay Street ended last week on an up note, making advances in the battery metals and telecom sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 199 points to close at 19,825. That's about a 1% jump. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up as well, adding 222 points to 34,061, while the Nasdaq rose 184 points up to 13,478. The Asian markets were performing very well this morning with Japan's Nikkei finishing up 759 points at 32,708, a more than 2% increase. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong closed up 302 points at 17,967. Dozens of workers at Ontario's public broadcaster will be back on the job today after voting this weekend to accept a new collective agreement and end a strike that stretched on for nearly three months. And the loonie is trading overseas this morning at 73.28 cents US. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Thank you very much, Rob. Let's go from business to the world of weather. Here's Alex Smythe. Alex, something pretty cool happened over the skies over the course of the weekend. Yeah, Dave, and you didn't have to travel like I did to Iceland to witness it. Uh, you could experience it in your own backyard. So uh, we're looking and reflecting on the geomagnetic, uh, geomagnetic storm that took place over the weekend that resulted in the Aurora Borealis being visible across parts of Europe and North America much further south than normal. So it was the solar activity coupled with clear conditions allowed places like Ukraine, the UK in Europe, and even the prairies, parts of Ontario and Quebec to see a dazzling display of not only the traditional green colors, but even the hues of red, which is a bit more uncommon to, to witness. And there's tons of photos out there of just uh, beautiful photos that people have been able to take across the uh, kind of the northern regions within Europe and North America. But the lights were actually even visible all the way down towards the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia. And 
really what and something I've, I've learned too is there's three major factors when it comes to aurora and, and its visibilities obviously the the solar activity like this geomagnetic storm is a big factor but so are cloud cover and then also the amount of light in the sky so if you have a full moon or a really bright moon it's going to really reduce visibility but since there wasn't a full moon right now that's really increased it allowed for these really vibrant colors to to come on display but the fortunate thing is, if you have missed this uh, last activity on last night, don't fret. There's always more apps and websites that track the level of geomagnetic storms and activity. And it seems to come up every few weeks, every few months, that there will be another storm and another chance to witness the aurora. Very cool. Alex, thank you for this. Coming up after the break, the Mr. Dress Up documentary is bursting with nostalgia. Kim Thistle will share her review of the film. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Mr. Dress-Up entertained more than a generation of Canadian children. For almost 30 years, he came into your home sharing imaginative tales filled with music and fantasy. Mr. Dress-Up is the subject of a new documentary called Mr. Dress-Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. Here's a clip from the trailer. Oh, here you are. You're here and we're here. I've got a good bat costume here to show you. Doesn't matter what race you were, what color you were, what religion you were, what language you spoke, you watch Mr. Dress Up. Scott Thompson. Mr. Dress Up. I mean, he was just so kind. Paul Sun Young Lee. Ernie never forgot a child within him. And that informs everything that he does with children. Fred Rogers. When you tell people that Fred Rogers and Ernie Coombs came to Canada together, most people don't even realize that they were very close friends. Craig Baird. 4,000 episodes. 30 years. There are not that many shows that last that long. Catherine Tate. Tell us what the secret is to 30 years on the air. I'm a child at heart. It's all doing things that I always liked to do when I was a kid. The tickle trunk was this magical, like, Pandora's box. Biff Naked. As soon as you open that lid, something was going to happen. Graham Green. I'm Tugboat Captain Dressup. Is he going to be a wizard? Oh, no, he's a dinosaur. The endless possibility of that. Entertainment critic Kim Thistle has thoughts on the documentary. Hey, good morning, Kim. Hey, good morning. I almost pulled stuff out of my tickle trunk to ah. greet you. <laughs> You're wearing polka dots today, though, so that counts as like a little bit, of, a little bit of flavor, a little bit of dress up with Kim. Uh, Kim, you've you've got a, a special connection to Mr. Dress Up. What did you love about the show? Oh gosh, but uh, for me, like he was for my childhood growing up, that's what we watched. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of other options, but Mr. Dressup was your go-to. And it's so interesting when I say to my friends, you know, I get together with my girlfriend and I said, Mr. Dressup. And they went, oh, I loved him, loved him, my God. And then I watched Grandy Dine after, I think Grandy Dine was after. And then we, you know, someone else will say, well, the ticker, tickle trunk. And like, there's, there's that nostalgic, as you had said, but there's also that, like, we all loved him. Like the man was just incredible, and and I I think for a long time I didn't know he had a real name, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was just Mr. Dress Up, right? <laughs> but 
it, it's just so endearing. And I mean, my partner and I returned from our beautiful vacation. And the first show we sat down to watch was Mr. Dress Up, because both of us are born, you know, in six, 1967. And that's what we remember growing up, that you sat down and you watched Mr. Dress Up. And the magic, the make-believe, the cartoons, the stories that he came up with, Casey and Finnegan. Uh, there was just so much to love. And when I watch it now, I'm thinking, my, how simplistic it was in a sense. And I don't mean simplistic as in a, in a negative way, but you know, you had your beautiful, the tree house and you had all the toy, but it was very basic and it, unscripted. It was, like you said, it, it was childhood. Kim, you clearly love the content here. And I think you've established that connection you had with Mr. Dress Up really effectively here. But you even mentioned, I didn't even know that Ernie had a name. Like, like I, I just saw him as Mr. Dressup. So what did you discover in this documentary? Oh, wow, so much. And, well, some of it was just told in the trailer. Like, I did not realize he was an American. I had always assumed he was a Canadian, but he did become an, a Canadian. Like, you know, I think after 30 years or something, he, is, he was a Canadian. He was best friend, really good friends with Mr. Rogers. He and Mr. Rogers set up a kid's show, I think it was called Butternut Corner, I think it was the name, here in CBC in Canada. That's where Mr. Rogers had his start. I did not know that. And then seeing the love between him and his um, wife, you know, Ernie Combs and his wife, I think they called her Lynn, and just those types of things. He was he was an, um, an animator. He was a puppeteer himself. I mean, there's so many things that I did not know. And that the, I think... Another thing I really discovered in watching it was you're not thinking this when you're, you know, three, four years old that, you know, Casey was non-binary. You didn't know that, right? But mm. Casey could be male or female. And they were so ahead of their time. And they mentioned that Ju Judy Lawrence, the puppeteer, she was very, very much feminist and socially conscious and didn't want sexual stereotypes and I guess that's the right way to say it like it wasn't that a woman was in the kitchen and the man was out working I mean she brought that to the show as well and her and Ernie Combs had a very good relationship and that's shown in the, the documentary which I thought was very endearing to, to see that and and so to, for, Mr. Dressup is sewing is sewing like you probably didn't see that in the 60s I know my dad didn't necessarily sit down and sew things right yeah, so yeah they were breaking barriers and that was so like as an adult now i can look back and see that and that's one of the things that matters in conversations around inclusion is sometimes it doesn't need to be explicit to challenge a stereotype sometimes it can be implicit you can platform or show something without having to make a big deal about it and i think sometimes that gets lost a little bit in the modern conversations about inclusion and trying to bring more people into the tent it always seems to be a big deal rather than something just being just existing yeah, yeah, or be organic. Just this is the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we you over the head with it. Awesome. Uh, Kim, I, I can already tell that you, you have a lot of things you liked about this documentary, but if I really had to put it into specifics, what, do you, what did you like about it? What did I like about it? Oh, boy. I guess part of it was reenact, reliving why I had loved Mr. Dress Up. You know, the cartoons, he always drew something. I mean, he drew with a marker, like not an eraser or a pencil. The tickle trunk, the imagination, the song. Oh, my gosh, the, long, the longevity of the show. I mean, there was, it was just very nicely done. That's what I had liked about the documentary. And I liked the way they had done the documentary. It, 
it's very engaging. You have different, you know, commentaries from, you know, movie stars and Canadian stars and executives, but they all talked about what made Mr. Rogers so special, the show had a uniqueness. And then in the end of the documentary, they talk about how he affected them. And mm. those were very touching. It, documentaries a lot of times will use that talking head method and even in that very short clip of the of the film preview uh, you heard Mark Phoenix's voice coming over there quite a bit saying the names of the people who were speaking I think it was eight or nine people in about a 60 second clip there so it was fast but what did you make of the way in which they utilized so many voices of of Canadian entertainment television executives to to sort of paint the picture of Mr. Dressup? You know what, when you say it like that, you're like, oh gosh, this is going to be too much, you know, in a sense, right? But it was very, it flowed very well and, and, and it was cohesive, it knit together, and it really was enjoyable hearing their perspectives, you know, how he was, um, you know, a trailblazer. And then later on, Eric McCormick, who played in Will and Grace, he talks about how much he loves the show and how it impacted him so much that he named his son Finnegan. So, I mean, th these are, my sister loved Mr. Dressup and I told her about this documentary and her first thing was, I can't wait to see this. And her two dogs are named Casey and Finnegan. Aww. So th there's, it, it was really nicely done. It didn't feel, the only thing I would want it would be when each person was talking to tell me who it was again, but, you know, not, we can get by that way. So, but they, 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 it was a lovely way of how from the start, from his beginnings and how it grew and, and the impact it had on Canadians. Along those lines, Kim, you mentioned that maybe it would have been nice to be given a little bit more guidance the second or third time somebody popped up on screen, especially when you're moving from talking head to talking head. How did the overall audio description uh, influence your experience on the documentary? Um, I think... It was good, but it could have been, I felt it could have been better. But then can it be better? Could you, like as you said, you got that person talking. So Eric McCormick is talking or Michael J. Fox is talking. And behind them are scenes, it could be photos, it could be clips from Mr. Dressup. We don't know about that. Like that's where, as you know, a visually impaired individuals, we don't hear that. Because I guess, I think we've talked about this before. How do you mesh that together and still have a, a show flowing? But overall, like the, the description did tell us, like for the very in the beginning, it said a camera pans on one side of the room and there's a, a red box and a kitchen and a counter. And on the other side is the tree house and Casey comes out of the tree house. So they do tell us those situational um, audio description. But for the little extra stuff, like, you know, him in the background dressed up as a clown, you may not have known that. Mm. Kim, I think I know the answer to this question, but do you recommend uh, Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe? Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. If you want to get your child down again and remember the imagination, the fun, the whimsical, the nostalgia, the magic and the fun. Oh, wow, what else? He, he was just incredible. And like he says in the end, do I have a minute to read out what he said to please, a graduate? Please, please. Yeah, I, I just said this really is a lovely summary. He said it in the beginning. He's he's a com what do you call it, a get valedictorian at the, the graduate. He said, keep an open mind, an open heart. Don't take life too seriously because it does not last forever, you know? And keep your crayons sharp 
Don't get your sticky tape tangled. And always put the caps on your markers. <laughs> there you go, Ernie Coombe. You were a big part of my life. Oh, and I do want to add, and I really remiss his daughter and son speak in this documentary, and that was really lovely mm. to hear their perspective as you know him as their father. So really nice. I watched it twice. That tells you something. I don't usually watch a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely says something. Hey, Kim, thank you for this. I can really tell that uh, this this documentary really resonated with you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. You too. Bye. That's, enter that's entertainment critic Kim Thistle in St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Kim reviewed the Netflix documentary, Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe, and you can find that on Amazon Prime. In one minute, Alex Smythe will tell you where he's been the last couple of weeks. But first, Consumer Reports has evaluated the durability of charging cables. Mike Dubusky plugs in for another edition of Tech Trends. We've all been there. Anybody who owns a cell phone has had those moments where you think you're charging it right overnight and you wake up and you go to use your phone and it didn't work. Consumer Reports' Chris Raymond says that often comes back to your charging cable, which led the organization to test seven popular cords, ranging from just under 5 bucks to almost $30. So we did two different tests, one that twisted the cords a few thousand times, and then one that um, that bent them, that one ended it back and forth repeatedly. Two clear winners emerged, says Raymond, starting with Apple's $29 lightning cable. It is one of those ones that you kind of grimace when you have to go pay for it at the cash register. But that Amazon Basics cord, the USB-C cord, costs only $6.55. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. You may have noticed that Alex Smythe has been away for a couple of weeks. Let's find out where Alex's adventures took him. Hello again, Alex. Hello again, Dave. Alex, let's break this down piece by piece. Where did you go? So I was two weeks away in Europe. I spent my first week in Munich and parts of the Bavarian uh, region of Germany. And then after a week in Germany, I flew over to Iceland and I spent a week touring around the country of Iceland. And uh, Dave, it, it was two weeks of just uh, jam-packed activities and sightseeing and uh, just fun memories, but I, I really enjoyed my time overall. <laughs> there, there were some, some hiccups along the way that uh, I'll be getting into, that's for sure. Let's start with uh, the flight portion of the conversation yes. because uh, flights notoriously super easy and always straightforward. Yeah, and this is something that I wanted to kind of raise awareness of because I've never experienced anything like this before. So we, ha uh, me and my girlfriend, we were traveling together and we had paid for upgraded seats to have uh, seats with more legroom. I'm a big guy. I like to have my legroom. And we hadn't checked in on the flight yet. This was about five, six hours before our flight, but we were going to get together and do it before we went to the airport. I got an email about uh, five and a half hours before the flight, and it was already a suspicious email that it seemed like it had Iceland Air in quotation marks, which any of the other correspondents oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah, it came without those quotation marks. So immediately I was confused and, and uh, hesitant, and then it, it listed an itinerary of instead of me going flying from Toronto to Reykjavik, Reykjavik to Munich on Iceland Air, it had us going Toronto to London Heathrow, London Heathrow to Munich. But not only not on uh, Iceland Air, it was going Air Canada from Toronto to London, and then Lufthansa from London to Munich. So 
I was confused in that regard. It's like, well, this isn't my flight. What happened? So I called up Iceland Air right away. Say, oh, well, you know, because of safety regulations and, and overbooking, we, we, we move people around for safety. It's like, yeah, but I paid for these seats. I, these seats have been assigned to me for months. But I, and then I tried to see if I could talk to a supervisor and said, oh, no, supervisors and managers don't answer phone calls. It's like, well, oh, well, that's great. That's, that's convenient. Super you know? awesome. So, so needless to say, we, we went to the airport. Um, we kind of checked in at the, at the airport and talked to their Canada, try to see if we could uh, kind of get moved to other seats. They said they couldn't because it was already a full flight. But what they did suggest, and this is a tip for anyone, if you're stuck with really un, unfavorable seats, what you do is you go to the gate an hour before the flight because that's when check-in closes. So anyone who hasn't checked in at that point, their seats become available. So mm -hmm. we were able to move because we were originally in the very last row in the middle section ugh. of a 343 configuration. Ugh, ugh. So you had people beside you on both sides and you can't recline your seat. We were able to move up a couple rows to get an aisle and the seat beside us. So it was a bit more favorable in that regard. So if Nightmare. you're stuck in that situation, go to the, the gate an hour before your flight, they may be able to move <laughs> you. So that, that was really the, the biggest uh, stress on the flight. The other flights, they were fine. Uh, they went smoothly. It was that first leg getting over to, to Germany <laughs> that was a real hassle. Alex, tell me more about the first leg. Please say mean things about Toronto Pearson International Airport. Uh, yeah, Dave. So. We've, we've had this debate before about Pearson. <laughs> Love-hate relationship. I personally really like Terminal 3. It makes sense to me. It, it, it's older, but it makes sense. And we were going to fly out of Terminal 3 with Iceland Air, but when it got switched to Air Canada, we mm -hmm. went to Terminal Off 1. Off to Terminal 1 you go. Yeah. And and the confusion, Air Canada employees, we were asking them, where do we check in? Where What security gate? People were pointing us in different directions. <laughs> it wasn't clear on that regard. Then once we got through security, which it was about a 20-minute, half-an-hour wait to get through security. It wasn't too bad. We You go to the gate in the sections and of course there's not really those those seats anymore they have those high top tables that are the four section where there's like ipads in front that you can order food and drink we sat there for about two hours and there were no one came by to clean the tables that were left messy from previous people sitting there mm -hmm. and, and then the bathroom situation wasn't also very nice either needless to say it was not a favorable situation that said I thought, okay, you know, Pearson's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. London Heathrow was where I was concerned, Dave, because I've been through there once, and it is busy. It's one yeah. of the busiest airports yeah. in the world. It was the most smooth, seamless transition I've ever had at an airport. It took two minutes to get through security and customs combined. That's it. We literally walked through, and we were already at our gate. I've never experienced anything like that before. I was shocked. And even coming into Munich, same thing, two minutes to get through security and customs, very, very smooth. That said, when we had to fly from Munich to Iceland, it was, again, chaos because they had sent every single check-in counter to this one security check-in. It took two hours to get through check-in oh and security gosh. to get to our flight. We had Ugh. 20 minutes to spare. But all in all, you know, you, you come in with, with the right amount of time, you, you give yourself that buffer, You'll be okay. We weren't too stressed. We we made it on time, so no major issues with that. Still, when you compare Pearson to London Heathrow, Munich, yeah, Pearson has some some work to do in that regard. So, Alex, you got to be relatively quick on this. I'm yes. going to hold you to sort of under two minutes. But what was your transportation experience on the ground, whether it be Munich or Reykjavik? Take your pick. 
Sure, so I'll focus in on Munich because it's really fascinating. I've never experienced this before, but Munich is clearly a city designed for pedestrians and public transit. Oh, I like that. And, and so it is a very walkable city, but it's also even the lights and, and everything are timed in favor trams or subways or streetcars or buses. I've never experienced anything like that before. It's so seamless and so prepared for that. But the downside is if you are in a car, you are gonna be stranded and stuck and frustrated in traffic for a long time. We had to get from our hotel to the train station, which was about two and a half kilometers away. It took us 45 minutes by car to get there. And in hindsight, I probably would have taken a subway or something to get there uh, next time. But, you know, with luggage, the last thing you want to try to do is navigate yeah. that situation. <laughs> yeah, or so. walk or walk two and a half kilometers, schlepping your exactly. bag behind you. No chance. Ex exactly. So um, that's that's a bit of a tip. Like, you know, really try to avoid any type of car or vehicle in Munich. Go with the subway, go with the public transit or walk. It's It's a great place to walk and take public transit. Alex, glad you had a safe trip. Glad you're uh, back in the mix. We did miss you, and uh, welcome back, buddy. Well, thank you, Dave. I'm, I'm happy to be back and uh, get back into the swing of things with you. Well, Alex will be back in just a couple of minutes for the uh, roundtable conversation. Coming up next, British Columbia has a bumper crop of mushrooms this fall. I'll have that story in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You can also find the show in audio-only form at amiplus.ca. Or maybe you're listening on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, November the 6th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the 2023 Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit went down last week in England. Stephen Scott will share his takeaways from the conference. And the Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament has wrapped up. Peter Parsons recaps the event. That and much more coming your way over the course of the second hour of the show. But first, here's the regional news updates. Starting in British Columbia, BC is experiencing a surge in mushroom growth. John Kennedy sprouts up this report. BC mycologist Andy McKinnon says last year was a poor year for mushrooms with the summer drought extending into the fall, but rain this fall has brought out a flush of fungi. Naturalist and mushroom expert Cam Luther says he's noticed the same trend this fall, with the rain arriving and the trees moving sugar to their roots to give the mushrooms an infusion of food. But there's also a bonanza of poisonous mushrooms to be careful of, including the fly agaric, also known as the Super Mario mushroom, with a red top and white spots found all over the south coast. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. Yes, definitely do not get in the habit of just randomly eating mushrooms out of the ground. Not a good approach. Over to the prairies. Hundreds of people in Edmonton showed up bright and early to be one of the first to catch the Valley Line Southeast LRT's inaugural run. On the weekend, passengers brought cake and champagne and cut red ribbons to celebrate. The line had originally been scheduled to open in December of 2020. The 13 kilometers 
kilometer line gets its first dose of the daily commute this morning. That's happening right about now. Hopefully it uh, does better than Montreal's REM system. Speaking of Montreal and Quebec, hundreds of thousands of Quebec public sector workers are off the job today in the first of a series of one-day strikes. Schools, healthcare facilities and social services will be disrupted as four unions representing 420,000 workers go on strike to protest the province's latest contract offer. The government's latest offer includes a 10.3% salary increase over five years and a one-time payment of $1,000 to each worker. The strike will last from midnight until 10.30 a.m. in elementary and secondary schools and until noon in junior colleges. Some health and social services will operate at between 70 and 85% capacity. Emergency and intensive care services will be maintained at 100%. And finally, over in the Atlantic region, Newfoundland and Labrador has begun consultations for two new climate change action plans. One plan is focused on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in order to achieve the province's 2030 goals. The second plan is aimed at preparing for and responding to the impacts of climate change in the province. The province is accepting input from the public on these plans via written submissions, email, and an online questionnaire until December the 13th. That's your look at the regional news. Brock Richardson is here for a sports chat. Brock, let us start with flowers and positivity for the Vancouver Canucks. Going into the weekend, you and I agreed the Canucks-Stars game on Saturday night was probably going to be one of the most interesting on the NHL calendar, and the Canucks passed that test with flying colors. A very impressive performance, and Brock, I'm now at the point where I might have to eat some crow and raise the Vancouver Canucks season standard from don't embarrass yourself to... Maybe you could win a playoff round? Yeah, I mean, what a turnaround. I I was watching that game thinking, okay, this is one of those games that I want to see what Vancouver does. And, man, did they ever deliver. Now, of course, they got some help from goaltender Thadra Demko, who played outstanding and made some really nice saves. But, again, they took advantage of some timely opportunities Elias Pettersson got a goal. It was it was a wonderful game if you're if you're a Vancouver Canucks fan. And you took the words right out of my mouth, Dave, because I was going to ask you when, if at all, do we have to jump on the Vancouver Canucks bandwagon? And it seems like it's now as their record is eight, two, and one uh right now, which is really, really good. So good on the West uh for Vancouver because Edmonton not pulling what they should right now. So Vancouver is your team out there in the West. Yeah, Calgary struggling, Seattle struggling, Edmonton struggling. The fact is Vancouver does not have to give any of these points back. And you mentioned Elias Pettersson. The guy is tied for the league lead in scoring, right? Like like that is, after 10 games or 11 games, that's not nothing. Certainly keeping up that pace is going to be difficult. He's on a 160-point pace. I don't think anybody assumes he's going to get there. But in a contract year, And as the scoring offensive leader of that team, he's putting up the points. He did it again on Saturday. This team is playing remarkably well. And Brock, it's one of these things where I can't put my finger on it because the roster is not that much different than last year. I wonder if over the summer they got tired of being laughed at. Well, and I just also wonder, like, there's, 
nobody put any level of expectation on them to begin the season. So when you don't really have that level of expectation and you're a team that comes out and says, we'll, we'll prove you wrong. Uh, an athlete and an athlete mind and a team really says, okay, we'll, we'll jump on board with this and we'll prove you wrong. Athletes love to prove the media yeah. wrong and love to say, we're going to do this. And look, I mean, we talk about this all the time. People often say, oh, it's early in the season. And it is sure. But you got to put these points in the bank and they're doing it. And later on in the season, these are the games you're going to look back and say, this is why we are in a third place in the division, a wild card because of the early parts of the season when we banked the points when maybe we weren't supposed to and we shouldn't have done it according yeah. to the prognosticators. I, it's it's not as if they're sneaking up on people because they have good players on the team. So uh, so you do wonder how much coaching ends up playing into this and how much credit has to go for a revamped coaching staff as well. Brock, let's go into uh, the National Football League. Week 9 observations. I'm leaving this nice and open for you. I've got a big observation that I want to share in a moment. But what is your National Football League Week 9 observation? Uh, two things. Philadelphia knows how to pull it out. Uh, they know how to win. They know how to how to gut it out and really play good defense when they have to and put it in when they need to. I Second thing is, Buffalo doesn't have that. They don't have that, we need to win. We need to pull this out. Last year and the year before, this was a team that you'd say, okay, they can figure it out. But Buffalo really seems to be falling apart in the later parts of games when they kind of give themselves up with too many turnovers. And I wish that I was a supporter of the Philadelphia Eagles because they are a team that just knows how to win and they figure it out. And that's why they only have one loss on the season. So, Brock, a little context there. The Philadelphia Eagles beat the Dallas Cowboys 28-23 at home to take control of the NFC East. It looks like uh, they are in control to win that division right now. However, their schedule is horrific over the course of the next month. It's basically nothing but big games for Philly uh, here on out. That's what happens when you win your division last year. You get a brutal schedule the next year. But uh, they were defensively very impressive yesterday, holding Dallas at bay in the fourth quarter. If I were to express concern, Brock, Philadelphia had a couple moments in that game where they controlled the ball late in the fourth quarter and could not get a first down. So I wonder moving forward if they have to start figuring out a little bit when we get the ball with four minutes left in a game to put a team away and get some first downs, we actually have to go get those first downs. As for the Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills, the uh, Bengals beat the Bills last night. What was the final? 24-18? Was that the final score in that one, Brock? 24-18. The Bengals beat the Bills. Uh, The one thing that I would be concerned about if I were the Buffalo Bills, for the second straight time playing the Bengals, the Bills got out-physicaled in a big-time way. The Bengals owned the line of scrimmage. They controlled the ball for 11 minutes in the first quarter. So Buffalo was sucking wind by the time they got to halftime in that game. And Buffalo never quite got their legs back under them. They were chasing the game right from the start. And uh, the Bengals, I think, are starting to prove that they have the Bills number in that AFC. And my goodness, that AFC North with the Baltimore Ravens, Pittsburgh Steelers, Cleveland Browns, and Cincinnati Bengals, all four of those teams have a winning record. If the playoffs started today, all four of those teams would be in from the same division. It's remarkable stuff. Yeah, it is. And you, the Bills just seem to find a way to shoot themselves in the foot. Like, they had a really key turnover in the 
either in the later part of the second half or beginning of the uh, later part of the first half or beginning of the second half. I can't quite remember too many football games in my mind last yesterday, but they just, they find a way to shoot themselves in the foot. Yep. You know, they bring the ball down downfield and then it's, Oh, we have a turnover. And, and you just, like you said, they're chasing it, but they're really, really chasing it when they have a turnover. Uh, it's real tough to do. So I don't know if I'm so sold on my own Buffalo bills, you know, doing very well and and going very deep in the playoffs. They're certainly not a Super Bowl contender, in my opinion. How about this wraps up on a little bit of positivity. The Houston Texans beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers on a last-second touchdown by rookie quarterback C.J. Stroud. C.J. Stroud yesterday set the NFL rookie record for passing yards in a game. He also threw five touchdowns. He also had zero interceptions. He also engineered a game-winning drive with 46 seconds left on the clock. Brock, the C.J. Stroud era has begun. Every year, about one quarterback emerges from the rookie class as being elite and cj stroud is the guy look out for the houston texans it might not be this year but cj stroud is on the move never a strout in my mind brock have a great day you as well that is brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break the 2023 artificial intelligence safety summit took place in buckinghamshire england really do a lot of these shires in England. Buckinghamshire. Buckinghamshire. I'm just going to say England. Stephen Scott shares his takeaways from the conference. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv technology executives and world leaders met to discuss the impact of artificial intelligence last week the result was an agreement by countries and tech companies to collectively manage the risk from artificial intelligence stephen scott from double tap has thoughts on the subject and the agreement that came out of it hey good morning stephen Good morning, Dave. How are you today? Stephen, I'm well. The summit was referred to as the AI Safety Summit, so you can kind of tell where their brain was at even before this thing started. How big a deal was this? Well, it was a big deal. I mean, certainly not maybe as big a deal as the Bills and the Bangles. You know, I remember the days when the Bangles were a band. I don't know what happened there. but When you would uh, walk you know, like an Egyptian. Absolutely. More of a Manic Monday kind of guy, oh, Dave. Okay. Um, but yeah. Anyway, it was a big deal. Uh, it was a big event for the UK for sure, in particular for our Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who got the chance to become a podcast host for about an hour and sit down with Elon Musk for a rather interesting conversation. Really, that was the focus of all the media's attention. Interestingly, though, I had uh, I have some friends in, who were in the room who are journalists who were not allowed to ask a single question during mm. the course of it. Mm. Uh, they were able to stand at the back and listen. Uh, but yeah, it was a really big event and give an opportunity for us to, I guess, get a lot of the leaders of this into the room and have a conversation about the potential upsides and downsides of AI. What did you make of the agreement that came out of it? Because private sector folks and public sector folks were expressing some 
trepidations about AI. I, I sometimes wonder how overblown that is or how much of a narrative it ends up being. But what were some of the threats that they were talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, look, there's the conversations we have about it every day and, and what the potential harms could be. I think the first harm that came up was a conversation around jobs. What will happen to our jobs? I think Elon Musk was uh, quoted as saying at the event, you know, there is not one job that is out there today that couldn't be done by AI. And if you're not depressed enough, mm. um, that apparently one of the things we should look forward to is finding meaning in existence. Oh, well, there you go. That'll oh, cheer everyone up fantastic. on a Monday. But, you know, as far as the conference was concerned, they were looking at the potential for intentional misuse. So, oh. you know, basically people, bad actors doing things with this, using this in nefarious ways. That could mean anything, let's be honest. But also risks as well to cybersecurity, biotech, and, of course, the thing that we hear about a lot, the spread of disinformation. So, you know, key areas where government can get involved, because that was what this was about, how governments can actually get involved in regulation and making sure that all of this is something that is is managed better than perhaps we did with social media. Even before U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris made uh, her appearance at the conference, the Biden administration did put into some protocols uh, within the United States last week that was also dealing with artificial intelligence. Again, however broadly you want to phrase that. What do you think about the prospect of the government getting so deeply involved with AI here? Because, Stephen, I know that the general mindset here is that AI is something that really popped up here inside the last 12 months. But that's not the case. AI has been in existence for like 15, 20 years. So I know governments want to make it seem like, oh, we're ahead of the game with our regulation. But like everything, they're, they're at least a decade behind. Oh, absolutely. And that's the biggest problem here. But, you know, there's a lot to be learned from a guy called Tristan Harris. Now, he runs the Center for Humane Technology, and he has spoken about this. He's the guy who you might have watched the documentary The Social Dilemma on Netflix. Mm -hmm. It was a fantastic documentary, and it really delved into the impact of social media on our society. And if you haven't seen that documentary, it's well worth checking out. It will terrify you, and you'll probably never use social media again, but maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, but he's now moving on, and he's saying... And, and, and listening to a, a talk that we've been interested in recently on called The AI Dilemma, which is kind of taking this on to the next level, really looking at the dangers of social media and what happened when we allowed social media to embed itself into every part of our lives without any kind of management or regulation. We didn't do that with social media. And I think lessons have to be learned from that in AI. Now, what those lessons are and what that means, because, of course, the concern here is when it comes to governments, everyone immediately jumps to <gasps> overreach. There's going to be too much government involvement in this. Government's going to stick their neb into this. But perhaps it needs to be the case, because if you think about it, if we're talking about replacing a workforce over time with robots, then maybe the government needs to be involved in that. Rather than just allowing businesses and private sector to just run roughshod and replace us all with robots, to actually have some kind of managed process. Also, big questions around what will be the income of people. How will we all live? If we don't have jobs, well, we need to talk then seriously about universal basic income. But what does that look like and mm -hmm. how will it be paid for? All these questions <laughs> have to be asked. It's a big, big 
big question here. Yeah, you got to tax the tech companies to uh, pay the UBI, yeah. uh, to pay the UBI. I mean, that, that might be what it boils down to. Yeah, your robots are doing all our jobs. Okay, you got to you got to pay back into the uh, you got to pay back into the stipend for that one. Uh, Stephen, there obviously because there's the private sector present and because there's the public sector present, there are a lot of different conversations going on here. One of the notable uh, events was that China was present. They had their uh, mm. their their science minister, their science and tech minister present, who expressed an open desire to work with countries like the UK and Canada and the United States on AI regulation, except China's in the midst of a ton of diplomatic disputes with most of those countries. What do you make of China's presence at this conference? I'm glad that they were invited, and I think it was brave of Rishi Sunak to invite them. He had to, though, because they are a major player in all yep. of this. So that's, that's, kind, that's, kind of where, that's kind of where I'm at, too. It's like you can't have yeah. a giant international conference and not have China there. I'm surprised they turned up, but I'm glad they did. But the, the thing is, <laughs> I'm often a little bit wary to say too much on this topic because I'm not as versed in the political leanings of all of this. But what I will say is that we have to have these people in the room but always be wary of what the result is because there's lots of promises made and I think we just have to look at climate change to see you know where we're at in terms of government response to that and how governments are dealing with it around the world. And it's also important to say at this point that with the size of these countries and the impact that they have on everything that we do, it's perhaps important for us to spend a bit more time analysing their responses to this and seeing how much they follow up on. The problem is the challenges for the West. How does the West continue to force or push China and India and other countries to actually do anything about this, to actually regulate, in this case, AI, or mm -hmm. perhaps mm -hmm. regulate with climate change? How do you push that? You can keep having the conversations... And it's good to have those conversations, but in the end, is it just a talking shop? Is it just to make the UK look good? When, frankly, at the moment, it's not looking that great. And I say that as a resident here. I'll probably not be a resident for a long day, so I hope you've got a spare room. Yeah. But <laughs> Actually, I do have a spare room, and I think you and I would make good roommates. I think I think people would pay yeah. to watch that show, Stephen Scott and Dave Brown living together. Uh, Stephen, I, I, I like what you're mentioning there, that you kind of have to have China and India, and even to a certain degree, like, I don't know if Russia was invited, but moving forward, they're going to have, have to start being conversations with having Russia in the room as well. But I always, I feel the same way about the private sector folks who are invited to this thing too, that, hey, listen, we've got to get reps from Twitter and Facebook and uh, Google in this room to be part of this conversation. But there's no guarantee that those private sector representatives are going to do what they say when they sign on to these agreements either. No, and again, that's the problem, right? So this is the issue with regulation. So in some ways, what you can do, we're starting to see that fragmenting happening across, for example, the online safety bill, which just passed through Parliament here in the UK. That is hoping to have a big impact on ensuring that these social media companies, for example, are held to account. We're seeing it in Canada with news services, Facebook and all the others, having to start, if they want to continue having news on their sites in that country, it has to be paid for. It has to be mm -hmm. essentially, you know, journalists can't work for nothing for anymore. We can't, we've got to pay for the content that we have and the social media companies just can't keep essentially broadcasting this for free. It's really important. So, you know, little things we can do to chip away at these huge companies that are worldwide. And this is the problem. I think without regulation, this is what happens. The social media example is a good example. If we allow the open eyes of the world to just dominate and we become in what feels like to some degree in awe of them, 
And that certainly is how it felt watching Elon Musk talk to Rishi Sunak because you know, Rishi just looked like a, a giddy schoolboy yeah. uh, yeah, talking yeah. to Elon <laughs> Musk, you know, but you know, he's a leader of a country and Elon Musk owns a couple of companies and that's nice. But, you know, the conversation just wasn't the right way around for me. You know, it just didn't seem to be the right way around. It should have been much more that we were on the front foot rather than just being the Joe Rogan. Yeah. Uh, Stephen, speaking of uh, the Joe Rogan role that you and uh, Sean Priest like to play every day on Double Tap, you guys have a show coming up at noon today, noon Eastern time. What's coming up on the show? Well, talking more about uh, AI, of course, because that's never in the news. We almost shortchange people if you don't talk about it. Uh, but we are going to talk about the big uh, OpenAI developer conference that's happening today. Uh, this is very interesting. So apparently major updates coming to ChatGPT, which is their product, and lots more. Elon Musk has just in the last few months announced his own uh, competitor to whatever they're about to bring out. So it's all happening as we speak. On top of that, uh, not AI-driven, but human-made, a new website to tell you about Ooh. and it's all from the people who brought you double tap yes we have oh. a website dave and we're going to talk all about it today right on a little web design with stephen scott and sean priest yeah. hey stephen thank you for this have a lovely day thanks dave take care that's stephen scott he's one of the hosts of double tap you can find that show daily at noon eastern time on ami audio and you can follow the double tap team on twitter at double tap on air at double tap on air and soon their new website Speaking of exciting events around the AMI family, there's an opportunity for you to be part of a live studio audience. AMI is going to be taping a special episode of Kelly and Rumya on Monday, November the 22nd, 7th. Monday the 27th, November the 27th. I talk for a living, although I stink at talking. They are looking for 50 people to be a part of the audience. So if you live in the Toronto area, the GTA, or plan on being in the GTA on Monday, November the 27th, and you want to participate, you have to email info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. 50 people, those tickets get snapped up fast. Space is limited. All of you in attendance are going to be getting some gifties. Everybody gets a Kelly and Rumia gift bag. That's point finale. Everybody gets one. If you're in attendance, you get a Kelly and Rumia gift bag. But you also get your names entered into a draw to win one of two Apple gift cards. And those Apple gift cards are valued at $500 each. There's a lot of stuff you can buy at the Apple store for $500 or a bunch of apps. Ooh, think of all the apps you could download for your iPhone. $500 jingle jangling around your pocket. There's also five $50 Tim Hortons gift cards up for grabs. Now, if you want to win, you've got to be there. You've got to be part of the live studio audience on November the 27th, which means that you have to confirm your participation by emailing info at ami.ca, info at ami.ca. November the 27th in the GTA. Coming up after the break, it's roundtable time. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Alex Smythe, you're freshly back from Iceland and Germany, and you did some touristy stuff along the way. Yeah, Dave, some of the, the big uh, well-known things, some a bit more of a hidden gem, an uh, unearthed treasure. And so I want to focus in on unique museums because while I was in Reykjavik, I stumbled upon one of the most unique and fascinating muse museums I've ever heard of. It was the Icelandic Phallological Museum, or to put that in layman's terms, it was the Penis Museum. Oh my. It, it was something I I didn't expect to come across, but as soon as I uh, we we kind of saw the sign, we was like, "Well, we have to go check this out." And it was truly amazing. Like it had specimens, it had descriptions of all types of animals and in their breeding habits. The the there was even sections on mythological creatures and and things from lore like trolls, which are very big in Icelandic uh, mythology. So it was somewhere that. I'm really going to kind of remember for a long time because not only was it educational, it was also fun. It was lighthearted. Everyone knew what you were doing at the Penis Museum. You're having a good time, you're having a laugh, but you're also learning. So I wanted to bring the topic of unique museums to the round table and I want to find out like, what is the most unusual or unique exhibit or museum that you've ever visited? So Ramia, let's start with you on this one. Sure. Um, mine's going to be one people have heard of because there's more than one around the world. It's the Ripley's Believe It or Not. I went to the location in Florida. I can't remember where in Florida. But it was memorable to me because obviously it's very quirky. There's a lot of, you know, what kind of moments when you go through it. But mostly it's memorable to me because it is absolutely tactile. There is a lot of, and, and sensory friendly, I would even say. Um, there is a lot of audio. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad Alex is a museum wasn't too tactile <laughs> yeah right well i think i would still enjoy it but <laughs> if it was tactile, <laughs> so tactile, tactile and sensory friendly obviously makes a huge difference for me because or else it's like a going through a virtual tour right like there are a lot of these virtual tours now you can take part in and i'm like Hmm, my entire life of art galleries and museums have been virtual tours because it's just reading off of uh, plaques and memos and notes and maybe there's a tour guide and maybe you get the physical uh, like reality of being there and walking through the actual space. But most of anything that I find retainable when it comes to um, history or just information at, at art galleries and museums anything that i do remember is stuff that i've had touch tours with and the ripley's museum that i went to was extremely tactile mm. including the giant man so that's yeah an obvious answer but um really what sticks with me alex what was the uh, cover charge to get into the uh, phallogical museum uh it, it was a bit pricey i think it was like uh like maybe around 30 to 40 dollars mm, okay. uh, it's part of the challenge with ice and everything it's very expensive yeah, but that said in terms of tactile they did have a cafe where you could order um let's just say phallically shaped uh, waffles ooh, and, ooh, and desserts ooh. which we certainly did go. after after the tour as well so. you know uh, the the cover charge at the club 281 in montreal is about half of that just uh, you know fyi <laughs> uh nazreen what's the uh, weirdest museum that you've been to Gosh, I love the Ripley's Aquarium. Um, but uh, what I uh, love the most is, uh, what's it called? I went to Madame Tussaud's uh, museum in the, the, the UK. The, the wax museum, right? The is that, wax is that is? museum, yeah. exactly. And I've heard a couple of pronunciations, so excuse me if I pronounced that wrong. But um, 
I, I actually love that museum and it's so amazingly realistic. And uh, I mean, with my vision, how realistic can it be, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's still uh, so amazing. The structure is beautiful, the work they put in, but what makes it unique is that you're never too old to visit it. And I, I mm. agree with Ramya about the Ripley's, uh, not aquarium, sorry, I made that mistake, the uh, Believe It or Not um, Museum. And these kind of places, what makes them unique is just you're never too young, you're never too old to visit them. Um, it's it's a fun it's a fun place to visit regardless of your age. I mean, I, I, I'm okay at visiting aquariums and calling an aquarium sort of like a museum. I, I love going yeah. to aquariums. That's that's one of the things I typically do when I'm on vacation. Uh, mm. Not necessarily a big museum person. I will say, now, this, now Alex's museum is super fun. And what you guys are mentioning are super fun museums. I, I, I'm going to be the downer for once here and take a somber moment to talk about the Canadian War Museum uh, in Ottawa. It has to be one of the best museums that I've ever ever been to they always have a fresh rotation of programming that really doesn't celebrate war that like really really drives home the atrocities of war while still keeping a lot of the artifacts in place uh they did a multi-sensory room a couple of years ago that gave you the feeling of being in a shrapnel explosion where they would just put you in a room and have you and have use uh, multi-sensory uh, capabilities to make you feel the experience of shrapnel going off around you. It was awful. But it was also something that like really drove home the horrors of war. They built realistic World War I trenches a couple of years ago in one of their main exhibit areas. So, Ramya, I think that goes a little bit to what you were talking about, which is immersion, right? Sometimes immersion can be fun, but you can also try and do immersion the other way as well to make sure that you have a meaningful experience while you're at the museum. Yeah, absolutely. Like here, I know that you're talking about a very serious museum, but um, I wanted to take it to Toronto. The Badashu Museum that everybody talks about uh, seems like an interesting place to be, seems like an interesting kind of experience just because of the content and, and everything that they have there. But the challenge that I have is if I don't feel immersed, as you're saying, Dave, that experience feels half full. It doesn't feel as meaningful. Like there's so much that could be brought forth. But unfortunately, if you're not feeling like integrated into the experience, it just feels like a waste of time. And I will tell you, I went through a lot of museums when I was in Western Europe and there were so many, uh, so much historical um I guess, experiences I could have had around history, around things that happened. There were so many significant things, but it's all very lost on me because it was just verbal. It was yeah. just reading. Yeah. And it's very unfortunate, um, but that's why, like, even as uh, Nisreen was saying, sometimes I feel like a kid again going into these exhibits that are now popping up where it, there is marketing and promotion of the tactile experience you could have or the blind low vision experience you can have. And I feel like a kid again going into these places and thinking, oh, that's exciting because I can immerse. Yeah, that's how you capture the magic. Okay, let's zip around the table on this one. You all become an official curator of a museum. What is your museum dedicated to? Alex, first crack goes to you. The history of video games, and I'm going to set up the entire interactive spaces, have accessible video games, audio video games. I'm going to have all the old stands that everyone can go and play any classic game they want to play. 
It's going to be a fun place for everybody. I'm going to pull a family feud here. Good answer. Good answer. Good answer, <laughs> Alex. Well done. Survey says, I think that makes it onto the board. Nizreen, you get to be the curator of any museum you want. What is it? I'm going to add to that the history of music. And I'm sure there is some type <laughs> there's of music, no short, music There's out no there. shortage of those. I get it. I understand. But we can make them better. We can definitely make them better. Uh, you're going to have to dedicate it to some kind of music. What kind of music are you dedicating this to? Uh, Hip-hop. Boom. There you go. Hip-hop museum. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a good one in Brooklyn, New York, by the way, a hip-hop museum that's uh, allegedly mm. quite excellent. I should say allegedly. I've never been because I don't go to New York because New York scares me. Uh, Ramya, you are the curator of a museum. What kind of museum are you starting? Well, obviously, the first thing I think of is food. Um, mm. I'm not sure how we can maintain this. It's going to be a huge cover charge because I'm thinking it's got to be interactive. A history of food, sure, but mostly I'm thinking global and the fusion of different foods or geographically how <laughs> foods come together. Like, how do you find places around the world that are so far from each other but share very similar cuisine sometimes or elements of cuisine? This is something I love exploring. So Ramya wants to open a restaurant, not a museum. That's what Ramya <laughs> wants to open. No, there's so much. There's a learning experience at my museum. Sums it up, huh? Okay, you can't, you, you can't order your food until you read a book about the food. <laughs> it's a library and it's a restaurant. Unbelievable. It really speaks to Ramya. Hey, can I make a, uh, a, a, a museum dedicated to the history of bodybuilding and weightlifting? Ooh, huh? History of fitness? History yeah. of fitness. There we go. Good, good, answer. good answer. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, I forgot the gimmick. Good answer. Good answer. Uh, Alex, thank you for this. Welcome back. Nazreen, always great to have you aboard. Ramya, before I say goodbye to you, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? Uh, we are talking about recently released devices that could be cool gifts over the holidays mm. for people. We're oh, talking gosh. tech gift cards. <laughs> are, we, are we already doing holiday shopping segments? I know. Oh, my it's, gosh. It's atrocious, Dave. Unfortunately, we have one monthly segments, and we got to squeeze this <laughs> in November. But anyways, <laughs> so it's CNIB Smart Life. Um, but it will be fun with Robert Hampson and uh, company. And we have Know Your Rights with Daniel McLaughlin. David Leposky, lawyer, is joining us today. Oh, uh, the Ontario Disability Act is what's going to come up. Yep. And um, talking, it's like more Christmas, 30 plus Christmas markets and holiday craft fairs in and around Ottawa. Uh, so community reporter Kim Kilpatrick is going to tell us more about that. Very good. Ramya, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. <laughs> That's Ramya and within the co-host of Kelly and Ramya coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI. Coming up next, it's the Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament. No, no, it's not going to take place during this one segment. It recently took place, and Peter Parsons will recap it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The seventh Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament took place last weekend. Peter Parsons can offer up a recap of the event. Peter is the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. Hey, good morning, Peter. Good morning, Dave. So, Peter, let's uh, jump in at a bit of the broader level here, the 10,000-foot-above picture. What's the tournament all about at its fundamental level? Well, the Nova Scotia Open, it's a, a men's tournament. Um, like you said, it, it was our seventh annual last weekend, and we have had teams 
from across Canada, um, from the U.S. in the past, but we consistently get Ontario and Quebec coming to this tournament, um, which we had this season. Um, and it's a great development type of tournament. Um, you know, with goalball, it's not like we play in a league. We train um, and we go to tournaments. So there are not enough competition opportunities. And so it's really good for especially our younger developing athletes to get these competition opportunities. Go a little deeper into that. What makes a tournament like this a good fit for younger players? Generally, it, uh, you know, we've had some international competition in the past here. Uh, generally, it's more of a developing, the development type of tournament where we have, um, you know, it's it's not the biggest tournament. We don't get world-class players typically, but it is a nice competitive tournament that through the years, a lot of our athletes who go on to play on the national team have had a chance to compete at. And uh, the thing about the Nova Scotia Open as well, it happens in the fall, which most of the tournaments happen in uh, the new year, like the first tournament always was uh, the the Montreal Open the last weekend in January, which will be our next one. But um, so when we planned this tournament uh, back in 2015 originally, I remember thinking if, if we had a tournament be, uh, before the holidays, um, sometime in the fall, that could attract some teams. And and uh, yeah, and it's and it's uh, it's been a good tournament over the years. What kind of turnout did you get this weekend? Who showed up from where? So we had two teams from Ontario, and we had two Nova Scotia teams, and we had a Quebec team. So we had five men's teams overall, and uh, so yeah, it made for a good competition, good competitive tournament as far as a lot of. A lot of close games, for example, in the gold medal game, my Nova Scotia 2 team, we lost to Ontario 2, um, 4-3 in the gold medal game. And in the bronze medal game, our Nova Scotia 1 team beat Quebec in overtime. So the final two games of the tournament were one-goal games, very exciting, close games. Aside from the action on the court, what are some of the highlights around a tournament like this? Because because I know I know it's athletic competition, Peter. I know people are tuning themselves up for the for the uh, Para Pan Am Games or the Paralympic Games coming up. But uh, what, what was some of the vibe around the event besides just on the court? Yeah, you know it's great. Anytime you get together with a bunch of goalball players and and refs that we had coming from out of town and a lot of volunteers and a lot of you know visually impaired community that will come and check out the tournament. There's a, there's a real sense there's a real sense of community and camaraderie amongst the players. Um, you know the players we make friends, uh, especially, like I said, with the Quebec and Ontario athletes who a lot of times were at the, the same tournaments in Eastern Canada. And um, so, yeah, it was a really good vibe, kind of like an intimate type of one court gym. So the venue, um, you know, we're hanging out off the court and playing some good, uh, good competitive games with the, the first tournament of the season, basically, um, getting us going with uh with a good uh a good competitive tournament come on Keith, peter pull back the curtain a little bit how much fun were you guys having away away from the courts 
Yeah, we're we're having we're having quite a bit of fun, but at the same time, uh, four out of the five teams um, are playing in the semifinals on uh, Sunday morning. So you know, <laughs> got to get to bed kind of early on Saturday and be responsible. And uh, yeah, but it, it, you know, it, it was a fun tournament. And uh, and also, I should mention uh, all the volunteers that we had at the tournament because without the volunteers, it's not possible. And also our sponsorship because without the sponsorship. It's not possible. We have to keep the registration fees low to attract the teams and in order to, you know, pay for the gym, pay for refs, flights, the food, that sort of thing. We have to have sponsorship. So thanks to AMI, who were a gold sponsor and many of our other sponsors, um, it, it makes it possible as well. Peter, you're obviously on the front lines of this stuff. You're doing a lot of the work in both your role uh, with Blind Sports Nova Scotia, with your role in competitive goalball as well. What is the appetite for corp companies and corporations to come in and support the sport? What, what's the landscape right now on goalball? It's quite it's quite good, like especially amongst the disability community. For example, CNIB has been a, a longtime sponsor. The CCB has been a longtime sponsor. And then a lot of times we have, you know, connections that uh, that some of us have within the community that we um, we get sponsorship. Uh, for example, my my uh, physio uh, place, Excel Physiotherapy here, here in Halifax, who uh, helped keep my old body together um they sponsor the tournament every year uh, they provide the physio coverage so you know it's it's quite the community uh event and uh yeah i think that also when when um, an organization comes and uh, sponsors a tournament and maybe comes and checks out a game um they usually want to come back same thing with volunteers i always get I always get the same response from a lot of volunteers that come out to see the sport in person or friends that come and check it out. They always say, wow, that was, that was way more intense than I thought it was going to mm. be. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's just because, you know, it's a blind and visually impaired sport that they think we're just, you know, rolling a ball back and forth or something, but you know, the ball is traveling up to 70 kilometers an hour in the men's game. And you have to be so mentally focused when you're, don't have your vision as using your other senses and, and reacting to that ball coming at fast speeds. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been a real, um, it's been a real positive, uh, positive event over the years. People can have whatever misconceptions they want about parasport, but the second you hear somebody's rib cage hit the gym floor to block a ball, uh, it basically tells you everything you need to know about the intensity of goal ball. Yeah, yeah, it, it's an intense sport for sure. And, uh, you know, we have to do a lot of cardio training and strength training. Um, I'm known to be a big sweater out there. So uh, <laughs> they're always coming up and mopping up ah! my spot. Or when we switch sides at halftime, which this tournament was the first time we switched sides at halftime since COVID, because at, after COVID, we were keeping the same side. So I was really happy to switch sides to get a, usually a fresh quirk that uh, isn't slippery at all. And usually I hear, hear the right winger on the other side saying, oh, Peter, you left a mess down here. Sometimes they go to clean up that sweat and they smear it into the floor a little more. <laughs> uh, I empathize. I'm also a bit of a heavy sweater over here. Uh, not, not much athletic activity. In fact, sometimes I wake up sweating in the middle of the night. That, that, that's, how, that's how sweaty things get over here. Uh, Peter, uh, I know there were different players from different levels taking part in this tournament, but what's coming next for a couple of the players involved in the Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament? 
Yeah, so we had a few players uh, that were here, two from Ontario, one from Nova Scotia, and myself I'll include as an alternate for the um, for the Para Pan Am Games in Chile. So we actually just had a, a mini training camp over the, the weekend where a couple of the Ontario guys came and we had our Nova Scotia guys um, out playing some hard scrimmages and doing drills, putting the final touches on our training towards Para Pan Ams. So they happen um, this month in uh, in Santiago, Chile. Right on. Always, always a busy calendar. So, Peter, do you get a chance to take, to take a breath now? You've put this thing together, maybe getting ready to go compete with some of the guys. When does Peter Parsons get to take a breath? Yeah, basically after uh, after this tournament, I, I it was nice to take a breath because there's a lot of planning and organizing involved and also playing in the tournament um yeah when you're wearing multiple hats for sure it's busy but when you uh when you really enjoy it um you know it's it's uh it doesn't feel like work to me because i really enjoy every part of the planning like it does get really busy but especially when i see especially when i see um you know how much the the younger athletes are enjoying it and getting out of it and uh, even getting feedback from like the officials that come from Quebec, for example, that uh, say, you know, this is a great little tournament you have going on. It makes definitely makes it all all worth it. And uh, and uh, yeah, very rewarding. Right on. Well, another one in the books, Peter. Have a great day. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Dave. You have a great day, too. That's Peter Parsons, the chair of Blind Sports Nova Scotia. Been lots of Atlantic Canada representation on the show today. You had Shelley Petit of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. You had Kim Thistle in Newfoundland and Labrador. You had Peter Parsons in Nova Scotia. Look at that. Three of the four Atlantic provinces. Sorry, PEI, we did not quite get to you today. If only I'd included you in the regional news update. We could have had all four out of the Atlantic region. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't worry. Things kick off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time right here on AMI-tv or in audio-only form at amiplus.ca or Maybe you listen when you want. I don't tell you what to do, and you download the podcast. No matter how you do it, looking forward to catching up again tomorrow. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.